as we get going, I need two more volunteers. I need, I need, Hannah, would you be one volunteer for me? I just need to come stand up here. You don't want to do it? No? No. How about Elijah? Come up here. Yeah, come up here. You don't have to do anything. And let's see, how about Mr. McPhee? Why don't you come up and stand over here? Come up, Lige. No? How about Libby? Would you want to be my volunteer, Liberty? Will you come up and stand beside me? Oh, I'm having a hard time. Would you come up, Cherish? Yeah, right on this side. Come on up here. You won't have to do anything. You got to bring Mama up? We'll have the whole McPhee family up here soon. She doesn't want to. You're going to come up? Yeah. Okay, now I need, kids, I need your help here. Who is older? Which one is mature? Cherish or Mr. McPhee? Why, what, what do you think? <laughs> this, this illustration isn't going to work real well if we can't figure it out. Mr. McPhee? How come? How can you tell? Oh, he's got some gray in the hair. I wasn't going to point it out. What else? What else do you see? How do you know that he's older? He's taller? What else? Anybody else? Anybody see anything at all? What do you see? Yeah, he's got some scruffy stuff on his face. Yeah. Yeah. Think, who do you think is stronger? Are you stronger? Let me see. Yeah, Mr. McPhee's stronger too. So you guys can tell who's older, right? You see, you look at it right away. Thank you guys. You can have a seat. Um, we know what maturity looks like, right? We look at two people and we can see which one is the child and which one is the adult. That's what physical maturity looks like. But what does spiritual maturity look like? How do we tell what a, what a spiritually mature person looks like? What is... What does gospel maturity look like? Certainly, it's not as obvious. Um, there are no kind of exterior visible signs. People don't get bigger when they get more spiritually mature. Um, now, I think, historically speaking, I think a good healthy beard probably has something to do with it, but we'll leave that aside. Um, but other than that, there, there are no immediately obvious signs of, of somebody that's spiritually mature. So I want to jump into that and ask, how do we tell? And that's what we're going to see as we walk through um, our passage this morning. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. That's where we'll spend our time. Um, If you don't have a Bible on you, just go ahead and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one into that hand. We want you to have God's word open in front of you on your lap. Uh, I have nothing to say. I bring nothing to the table this morning. Um, It is all about God's word. And, and that is my foundation for anything of value. So um, I want you to be able to see God's word in front of you and walk away from here, not thinking those were interesting thoughts from John, but thinking now I see what God's word says more clearly. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or one that you can read easily, take this one with you. It's, it's yours. It's our gift to you. Um, we want you to have it. Uh, Paul's been talking about this idea of gospel growth just little by little since the beginning of this letter. I know we're right near the start still, but, um, but verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we went through that. I made the argument that um, that's not a throwaway phrase. That, that's a, a prayer for them, 
uh, on their behalf, that God's grace would be at work in them, transforming them, growing them in maturity. And then verse 6, he, as he's thanking God for them, he, he says that he's thankful for them being sure of this, that he who began a good work in them would bring it on to completion. Again, seeing this idea of gospel growth happening in their lives. If you remember verses 1 and 2, um, where Paul's greeting to the church, and then verse 3, he moves into this prayer, and we're still in that prayer. The first half, verses 3 and 8, is Paul's thanksgiving for the church. And, and in that thanksgiving, we see his, his understanding of what it, what it means to have a gospel-focused relationship, um, that those relationships are spiritual, are hopeful, and are missional. Now, as we move into verse 9, he gets into the meat of his prayer. Um, he's given thanks to God for them. Now he's beginning to ask God for something on their behalf. And his prayer for them uh, is for gospel maturity. It's that they would grow and become spiritually mature. And, and so I want to turn our attention to this prayer and, and, and how Paul defines that gospel maturity. So let me read this for us, and, uh, and then we'll get after it. He says, uh, Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 9, And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So that's Paul's prayer for them, for gospel maturity. You guys getting the fill-ins? I should mention, for those of you who haven't done this before, I have candy for you if you fill that out. Uh, and for those of you who are a little younger, if you're too young to fill that in, you draw me a picture, something out of the sermon, and, uh, and, and you will get candy as well. So God's prayer is for gospel, or Paul's prayer for this gospel maturity. Uh, and, and this is his definition. This is what that looks like. Love filled with knowledge, producing holiness to the praise and glory of God. Just kind of unpack that one, one step at a time as we go through these verses. And the first piece of, of gospel maturity is love filled with knowledge. This is verse 9, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, we, we could spend months on each of these, um, but we don't want to be 12 years in Philippians. And actually, um, Josh is preaching next week, so... Be sure to show up for that. Uh, and that means I can't even split this into two. I have to, I have to stay on track. Um, but these are the basic building blocks of what Paul is praying for. Love filled with knowledge is the foundation of gospel maturity. It's the, it's the bottom line of all of it. The logic of this passage is that, that everything else flows out from that love and knowledge and discernment. So this is important. Now, love, that, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Let's not skim over this, though. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He goes on in 1 John chapter 4 to say we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Um, love is essential. Love is bottom line. If you're not a loving person, you're not a follower of Christ. It, it's that simple. 
Love is mark number one of the Christian life. And growing in gospel maturity then means growing in that love. Obviously, he sees it in them to some degree. He wants them to abound in it still more and more. But exactly what do we mean by love? It's a nice word. We use it a lot. What does it look like on the ground? Well, I think 1 Corinthians 13 is not just a passage for weddings. It's actually really practical. It's, it's pretty helpful. Think about this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's helpful. That's, that's, that's love on the ground. There's another picture of love, though, right here in Philippians chapter 2. I couldn't help but read a little of it just a moment ago, but this is Paul's definition of love. Chapter 2, starting in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love. Here's what that love looks like, being of one mind, one accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's love. Um, a little more than a kind of a heart squishy feeling towards somebody. It's, it's an action. Love is sacrificial selflessness for the good of others. Sacrificial selflessness for the good of others. That's a key mark of Christian maturity. Do you, do you love others? Do you actually do things that cost you for the benefit of someone else? Someone who's not rude, not pushy, not self-serving, doesn't get irritated or bitter. Those are all ways that we kind of serve ourselves above others. Those are marks of, of love and they're marks of, of, of what gospel maturity looks like. So again, the Philippians had love and he's imploring the Lord to, to grow them in that, that they might abound in it still more and more. But Paul, Paul prays, as they would continue to grow in love, that their love would be joined with knowledge and all discernment. Love is not the only foundation, the only mark of maturity. Um, someone who's fully loving, completely loving, is not necessarily mature. Paul says that abounding love must be matched with knowledge and discernment. There are many, I think, who are comfortable there who just like to say, hey, as long as you love people, that's everything. That's it. Just, just love. Just do the right thing and God will smile on that. That's what's important is, is love. Love God. Don't worry about doctrine and theology. Don't get tangled up in all of that. Just love God and love others. That's what's important. I don't, I don't need doctrine. I just love God. Listen to what Paul says of the Jews in his day. Romans 10, he says, 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They had a zeal for God. They had a a love, a passion for God. But it wasn't according to knowledge. They didn't understand God. They didn't understand the doctrine of justification by faith. And so their love for God didn't even produce salvation, never mind maturity. Gospel maturity is marked by love and by knowledge and, and discernment, knowing who God truly is, knowing his word so that we can have discernment. Discernment is just using knowledge properly, making right choices, seeing the difference between truth and error, right and wrong, good and bad. This is Romans 12, 2 at work. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing, you're able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Are you able to to listen to a, a preacher on the radio and discern, this is true, or that's not right. That's not what scripture says. He's missed it there. Or talking with a friend about a a decision in their life or your own life and and weigh that against what the Bible teaches. This is what the Lord would call us to as Christians. This is the right decision and that would be the wrong decision. There are all kinds of battling ideologies today that would pull us away from what God's word says. And there are all kinds of opportunities, if you want, for people who call themselves Christians um, who would give you full leeway to disregard the word of God and go your own way. Are you able to discern between those? And here's the thing. As humans, we don't typically do well with both love and knowledge. We're typically either love people or knowledge people, and we kind of lean in our own direction and, and dismiss the other side. Some of you, as I talked about the importance of love, you're right there. Yes, church, love. That's what matters. We need to grow in in love. We need to be a people that is more loving. We need to be uh, believers that are more kind and and helping the poor and serving one another. That's, That's what's important and you're not wrong. But others here kind of mentally nodded their way through that section and, and then we got to truth. That's what matters. That's what's important. We need to be built on sound theology and doctrine and the truth. People who know what they believe and why they believe it. And you're not wrong either. But if that love comes without the truth, Without careful discernment and knowledge, it it quickly becomes zeal without knowledge and it's useless. And if that passion for truth doesn't produce love, isn't delivered in a a context of abounding love, then 1 Corinthians 13 tells us it's no more than a clanging gong. It's useless. Love and truth are not opposites. They're not at war with one another. Love and truth must go together. And and remember, what's our goal here? As we're trying to grow in gospel maturity, what's our perfect example? What do we look at? Anyone? 
kids. What? I heard it. Louder. Jesus. Yeah. The Sunday school answer wins again. He's our example. That's what we're after. He's the, the perfect model of maturity. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh, that's speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus had both grace and truth in full measure, love and knowledge, together. It's not wrong that we lean one way or another. We have our natural tendencies, and and that's a strength in that area. That's good, but we have to recognize where we're weak as well and, and just own that. Just know I'm a bit of a truth person. I need to watch myself. I need to guard my tongue carefully. I need to lean into learning to serve others. Maybe I need to spend a little less time in the books and a little more time serving people. Or, you know, I I really value love and, and keeping the peace is so important to me. I probably need to make sure that I'm also growing in an understanding of the truth and good theology. And, and, and am I willing when it's necessary to speak up, to, to even risk making someone else feel uncomfortable to speak the truth? Gospel maturity is built on this foundation of love filled with knowledge. So when you see people with both of those abounding together, that's a mark of maturity. Paul goes on to say, verses 10 and 11, that this love filled with knowledge ought to produce holiness. Let's look at these verses, follow along as I read verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So verse 10 begins with, so that. This is what that abounding love filled with knowledge is meant to to produce in us, what it's meant to do in you. And it's so that you may approve what is excellent. This is knowledge and discernment at work. This is its outcome. Testing, considering, approving what is excellent. Where do I spend my money, my time, my energy, my thoughts? Who do I listen to on the radio? Who who do I give my ear to? What defines my life? And not being satisfied with, well, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I think I can justify it. No, the question isn't, is it bad? The question is, is it excellent? Is it best? Paul goes on later in Philippians in chapter 4 to say, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Our goal shouldn't be just to avoid sin. Like That's a pretty low bar to set, right? Like I made it just above the sin line. No. It's not the worst show on TV. It's not the worst way to spend my time. It's, it's not quite crossing the line into sin. That, that teacher isn't quite heretical, I don't think. Okay, but is it good? Is it honorable and lovely and commendable and, and excellent? That's the question we ought to be asking. 
Paul says gospel maturity applies this discernment and, and approves the things that are best. Which means that gospel maturity is a life that is pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's holiness. It's a transformed life. And, and Paul defines holiness in two ways. You see it there first negatively and then positively. First, he, he defines it by what it's not. This life is a life that lacks sin. It's pure and blameless. It's not mixed with sin. It's not stained by blameworthiness. Not at all. Now, that's the end goal, right? That's where we're heading. That's the bar that's been set. 1 Peter 1, 15. But as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. That's the standard we've been called to live at is the, the holiness of God, perfect holiness. We're called to perfection. And as we saw last week in Philippians 1, 6, God intends to complete that work in us at the day of Christ and the, and the final judgment. So gospel maturity in its fullness, in its completeness, is absolute purity, absolute blamelessness. And we don't get there in this lifetime, not to the end, but gospel maturity is certainly moving down that road. It's not perfect, not sinless, but certainly less sin. Hating the sin that he finds in himself. Fighting to, to root it out. Repenting of every known sin. Quick to apologize and ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation. I think that's what he's talking about just later in chapter 1 down in verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a high calling. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is what he's talking about in, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 as he talks about who is appropriate to be appointed as an elder. It must be men who are above reproach. It's a high calling. Because an elder in the church is to be someone of spiritual maturity. But it's not only a lack of sin. It's also the presence of what Paul calls the fruit of righteousness. You see that? Pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, it matters for, for you nerds here, uh, the grammar of this sentence. How do you read that? Is it the fruit that comes through Jesus Christ, which is righteousness? Or is it the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and produces the fruit? Um, the answer is Paul's actually fairly clear in the Greek and, and English just isn't quite as precise um, the Greek word for righteousness is feminine, and the word for fruit is masculine. And the word that, that comes through Jesus Christ, is the key. Um, because that word can be either masculine or feminine, depending on what it's pointing to. And, and in this case, uh, it's masculine. It's pointing to the fruit that comes through Jesus Christ. And the fruit, then, is what's being described as righteousness. So the difference is, uh, we're not talking about our righteousness that we receive from Jesus Christ, our justification. That's, that's a true, but that's another topic. He's talking about the fruit of righteousness that comes in us as we grow. Gospel maturity is seen in the fruit 
of righteousness in our lives day by day. What does that look like? Well, Galatians 5.22, I think, is a pretty good place to, to look. The fruit of the Spirit. Oh, what Spirit? What's he talking about? Well, he's called the, the Spirit of Holiness. I, I, I always like that. In, in English, we always say Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's always the Spirit of Holiness. He's called the Spirit of Christ in us. And the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of, of Christ and holiness at work in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's evidence of maturity. That's what it looks like with flesh on it. You know a, a mature apple tree because you can see apples hanging off the branches. You know a mature Christian because he produces the, the fruit of the Spirit. It's evident in his life. You can see gospel maturity in love and knowledge producing purity from sin and the fruit of righteousness. But the question is, how do we get there? We see what it looks like. Now, how do I do that? And the answer is through Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ. To get to physical maturity, how do you do it? How do you, how do you go from, from baby to grown adult? Well, you eat food and you drink water and you breathe air and it nourishes your body and you grow. What is our spiritual food? What is our spiritual water and air and exercise? Maybe, maybe you grew up with the same song I did. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, 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 right? I don't know how many times I've sung that. Um, that's the answer then, right? Read your Bible, pray every day. Well, kind of, yes and no. The Bible and prayer are absolutely indispensable to growth in gospel maturity. It will not happen without those two things. They're tools, though. Tools of gospel maturity alongside things like meaningful fellowship in the church, fasting, memorization, meditation, taking communion. They're all tools, but they aren't actually themselves the food of gospel growth. They are the the gardens and the ovens and the forks and the knives of spiritual growth. There's one food. Jesus is the food, the water, the air, the exercise of spiritual growth. It's him. Just reading the Bible doesn't do it. You can read the Bible through a hundred times and not grow one iota in your faith. Just talking to God doesn't do it. You could memorize the entire Bible and not grow one step in gospel maturity. You could eat a loaf of bread and drink a bottle of wine every Sunday, and that would probably set you back in your gospel maturity. None of those things are themselves the nourishment that brings about gospel growth. You don't grow physically by putting a fork in your mouth. That's not the ticket. That's not what does it. But through those tools used properly, they help us feed on Jesus, being with him, resting in him, coming to know him more, eating, breathing, and drinking Jesus, we grow in gospel maturity. John 15 uses the word abide. 
Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. So reading and praying and fellowship and fasting and meditation and communion and all these things are all just points of attachment that we can use to, to connect ourselves as the branch to the tree to draw that life-giving nourishment of Christ. It's the, the blood vessel connecting the arm to the heart that we might grow in maturity. And through Jesus Christ, through his work in us as we abide in him, as we spend time with him, we're fed by him and we grow. Love filled with knowledge, producing holiness through Jesus Christ. And the more you connect to the vine, the more you grow. That's why it's possible to see someone who is old in the faith and not mature in the faith. Or someone who is relatively young in the faith, but has so attached themselves to Christ that they, they've grown in, in maturity in surprising ways. That's why God often brings times of trials into our lives, times of hardship and suffering, because trials force us to, to let go of the things that matter less and to hold more closely and cling more tightly to Jesus. That's why the Lord brings discipline into our lives. Hebrews 12, 11 tells us it's not pleasant at the time, but it produces that peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. Are you growing in gospel maturity? Do you see love filled with knowledge and discernment abounding more and more in your life? Do you see increasing purity and, and the fruit of righteousness more and more? And what are you doing to abide in Christ? To draw that spiritual nourishment from Him? To let Him work love and knowledge and holiness in you? Young men, young women, kids here this morning, you are in an amazing place of opportunity to, to cling to Christ now, to begin to grow rapidly and be nourishing him now and have a lifetime of fruitfulness ahead of you. Don't squander that. Don't miss that opportunity. You, you will not come to be that godly old saint unless you begin now. But whatever stage of life you're at, don't neglect those simple tools of, of reading the word and spending time in prayer every day. I encourage you, take time to fast. Jesus assumed that we would fast. Set a day aside. Skip breakfast and lunch. And, and just every time you feel that longing for food, take that opportunity to remind yourself and declare to the Lord, I need Jesus more than food. I don't feel that spiritual hunger the way I always should, but the truth is there. I need him more than I need lunch. Connect with the saints. Spend time spurring one another on and being spurred on in the faith. As you abide in Christ over time, he will produce in you this growth and, and strength and maturity. And the last question is why? What's the goal of gospel maturity? 
What's the final purpose in all of this? Where are we going? This may well be my favorite part of this little passage. This is so rich. To the praise and glory of God. I fear we read that so quickly. We skim over it. But it's such a rich statement. To the praise and glory of God. Those are different things. Praise and glory. They're they're connected, but they're not identical. Um, In some ways, they might be opposite sides of the same coin. We've talked about the glory of God as we've been working our way through Exodus. It's God's weightiness, His significance. It's His majesty and His value of who He is. And so God's glory in one sense is never added to. You can't make God more glorious. So when we say that something is to the glory of God, or that we want to glorify God, it doesn't add to His glory. It means that it's putting His glory more on display. To glorify God is making His glory more visible, more apparent. We're drawing attention to the glory that's already there. And that is God's ultimate goal in all that He does. That is God's ultimate purpose behind everything. It's why he created us as humans. That's why he's worked out this grand plan of salvation. Isaiah 43, he says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring forth my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, listen, whom I created for my glory. God's glory is the purpose for everything. Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. What does that mean? It means to him be glory forever. Amen. And he will ultimately succeed in that purpose. God is not thwarted in anything he does. Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. There it is, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, like the waters cover the sea. That's his ultimate purpose. That's the end goal of everything. How do we fit into that? What's our role to play? Well, God's glory will be put on display in two ways as he acts toward humanity. Some will display the glory of God as he shows his holiness, his righteousness, his absolute unwavering dedication to all that is good and just as he pours out his wrath against sinners in hell, against those who, by their disregard of him, have said, God, you are not glorious. You're not worthy of my belief. You're not worthy of my praise. You're not worthy of my obedience. And the horror of eternal hell will go on to display forever how wrong they were. But he will also display his glory in his kindness and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness on those who are redeemed by Christ, who have been saved by his grace, who have been forgiven of their sin and rescued from the hell that we deserve by the cross of Christ. Ephesians 2.7 puts it this way, speaking of our salvation, saying, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, there's his glory, show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness Toward us in Christ Jesus. 
Ephesians 1, that, that first section of the chapter, is one of the fullest, richest outlines of what the gospel is all about. It begins with God's plan to save from before the foundation of the world in verse 4, and it ends in verse 14 with the, the culmination of receiving the inheritance that is set aside for us. And three times to that wonderful passage, Paul rehashes, reuses this same phrase, to the praise of his glory. That's why he's done it, to the praise of his glory. But what does that mean? What's our role in this? We can't add to his glory. How do we display the glory of something? Well, think about something glorious. Obviously, a, a lesser glory, but we, we love things that have a, a certain wonder to them. Maybe it's a favorite meal that is just so spectacularly delicious. Maybe it's just that incredibly comfortable armchair that you got last week. It's so comfortable, you wouldn't believe it. Kids, maybe you have a, a favorite movie that you could just watch over and over again or a special toy or doll that, that your grandparents got you that's just, it's perfect, it's amazing, you love it. Whatever it is, how do you display its glory? How do you show that it is wonderful, that it is amazing? Well, you enjoy it, Right? The meal must be good. Look how much joy it gives to the eater. He orders that meal every time we come here. It must be good. That chair must be comfortable. He goes right to it as soon as he comes home and he's happy in that chair. He enjoys it. Look at the smile on his face when he gets in. If you never eat the meal, if you never sit in the chair, if you don't enjoy it, what evidence is there of its glory? We glorify something. We show how great it is by enjoying it. What do we naturally do as we enjoy something that further displays its glory? We praise it. We say, oh, that steak is good. Try this. Come and see. You've got to go to that restaurant. You've got to try it. It's the best steak in the world. Look at our wife and we say, you're so beautiful. You're such a loving, caring spouse. I love the way you smile, the way you laugh. We, we, we praise it. We glorify something by enjoying it. And then that enjoyment overflows into praise. C.S. Lewis in his little book, Reflections on the Psalms, has this great little insight. It's, it's worth the whole book. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. So think about that. We delight to praise. We enjoy the act of praising something. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely, the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. We love to praise things. Because that expression of praise is the fullness of enjoyment. It's the consummation of the enjoyment of something. And so as we read through the Psalms and time and time again is the command, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, put my glory on display by enjoying me to the fullest. The praise 
and the glory of God go together. And the fullness of our joy in him overflowing in praise is how his glory is put on display. This is really good news for us. Really good news. Because God is infinitely glorious, right? When we chuckle at the the glory of a comfy chair, it has a very limited amount of glory. It will bring a limited amount of joy. God is infinitely glorious. And he intends to display that infinite glory completely by making you happy in him in proportion to that glory. Let that blow your mind. That's what eternity is about. That's why heaven is long. That's why we want to be there because the glory of God is on display because God will not fail to display his glory in the maximum and overflowing joy of those whom he has saved. Unbelievable. Gospel maturity is all about the praise of his glory. It's the culmination of it. And first, we... We praise his glory right in the process of gospel maturity, right? As we walk in obedience, we declare by our actions, he's worthy of our obedience. Why do you live that way? Because God is worthy of me living the way he asks me to. As we set aside the sinful things of this world in order to pursue him more, what have we done? We've said God is more glorious than anything this world has to offer. He's better. As our lives are changed to reflect Him in love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, we glorify what we imitate. We don't just glorify God in the process of gospel maturity, but we also enjoy His glory more because of gospel maturity. The more we walk in love filled with knowledge, producing purity and blamelessness, bearing the fruit of righteousness, the closer we come to him, the less of a wedge there is between us and God, the more we see and experience the glory of God. And like the the finely tuned ear of a well-trained musician can can hear the the layers and notes of a symphony or or the the precise discerning tongue of the skillful food critic can taste the the distinct and varying and complementing flavors. So those mature in the gospel have this heightened experience and ability to enjoy God in greater ways. And as our joy increases, our praise increases, and the display of his glory increases. That's the goal of gospel maturity. It's the praise and glory of God. Church, we want to grow in gospel maturity for the glory of God, for for the joy of your own soul. Don't, Don't be satisfied to just kind of dip your toe in the faith. I've got enough. I think I've got my stamp. I'm, I'm going to heaven. Now pursue him. Grow in him. Filled with love and knowledge and discernment. Be pure and blameless. Producing the fruit of righteousness as you abide in Christ. And then bask in that joy. Overflow with praise to the glory of God now and forevermore. What a great hope we have. 
So we want to join together in the praise of his glory. I invite Josh to come back up. We're going to close in song together. But we're also going to close abiding in Christ as we remember his sacrifice through communion. That's where I want us to leave off this morning, abiding in him. The picture of communion, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, uh, is actually the exact same picture as the, the branch connected to the vine. It's saying, Christ, I need you. You are my spiritual nourishment, my nutrients. I need to be connected to you, Christ. You're my life. That's why we're, we're baptized once as a symbol of our new birth. And we take communion over and over and over again saying, I need to stay attached to Christ. So we're going to sing. And as we sing, um, Arnold and Dorothy will be here along with my wife and we're going to hand out um, communion to you. So um, again, this is for believers here this morning. This is for those who have been born again, who have trusted in Christ. So if you're not a believer this morning, I just ask that you would sit this out. Just hang out in your chair. That's fine. Or maybe if you're in a place of unrepentant sin, Paul warns that it would not be safe for you to simultaneously, as John's example, hate your brother and declare your love for God. And so again, I would encourage you to hold off, to repent of your sin, to go be reconciled with your brother, to make right whatever it is. But I also want to be clear, this is for sinners walking in repentance this morning. We don't We don't ask for perfection to come and partake. This is where we come in repentance with our sin to say, Jesus, I need you more. I need the cross. I need that life that you give.